everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and that little bit kinder to yourself, because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode is kindly sponsored by Zendium Toothpaste, which is different because it actually strengthens your mouth's natural defences. I've been using it for a few months now and I can massively tell the difference. My mouth actually feels healthier. What I also love about Zendium is their commitment to the planet. They recently removed the cardboard box from all their toothpastes, saving hundreds and millions of tons of cardboard every year. Isn't that an example of one of those super simple but massively impactful changes? I've often wondered why toothpaste comes not only in a tube, obviously, but also has that cardboard box around it. So it's such a brilliant change that they've made. And the Zendium tubes are also made from plant-based plastic and are fully recyclable. So when you give Zendium a try, not only are you being kinder to your mouth, but also the planet, I would love you to try it out. I've got all my friends and family using it now too. They are all loving it too. So if you go to zendium.co.uk, pop Motherkind in at the checkout and you will get 20% off. That's zendium.co.uk, pop Motherkind in at the checkout for 20% off. Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of 2021. I am so happy you are here. I hope you all had a lovely festive period. What is 2021 going to bring us? Honestly, who knows? But one thing I do know is that I'm really excited you're here. I know many of you are long-standing listeners to this podcast and I am so grateful. And I wonder if you could take a moment because by listening to this podcast, just by listening, you are investing in yourself, in your development, in your inner world, and committing to finding more and more joy and happiness in your life, and therefore modelling that to your children, which, as you know, I think is the most important thing that we can do as parents I think so often we can forget all the things that we do in our lives to feel better, all the things that we do in our lives to invest in ourselves. And this is one of them listening to this podcast. So maybe just pop your hand on your heart and thank yourself for even being here. This week's guest really needs no introduction. It is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. He's been called the UK's most influential doctor. He's a best-selling author. He also has the top wellbeing podcast in Europe called Feel Better, Live More. This episode is really split into two halves. The first half is Rongan sharing incredibly honest and vulnerably about his experience of 2020, what's been coming up for him in therapy, particularly around external validation and success. And Im and I have a lovely exchange about generational imprinting that I adored getting into. And I hope you also really enjoy the cheeky moment when I pitch myself onto Ronkin's podcast, which he did say yes to. So hopefully that will happen this year very excitedly. The second half of the podcast this week is all about weight loss. Now, I know it's the first week of January. You're probably being bombarded from the messages in the media about weight loss, many of which will be about quick fixes, many of which will be celebrity plans, celebrity videos, celebrity content. And Rongan's message on weight loss is the absolute antithesis to this. What he shares is what's going on in the inside mechanics, both mentally and physically around what might be stopping you from losing weight if you really want to. Of course, this is an emotive subject. So, but I think what you'll get from this episode is that what Rongan is really sharing is loving, 
compassionate and effective tools if you do want to lose weight. And I really challenge him actually on why he's written a book around weight loss. So you will hear that in the episode too. I hope you really enjoy it as ever. Please do share, please do rate if you feel moved to and subscribe so that you don't miss out on an episode. Here it is. Rongan, welcome. I'm so excited to be sat back with you this morning. Hey Zoe, I can't wait. You are one of my favourite podcasts to appear on, so thanks for having me on again. Oh, thank you. Well, the last time we spoke, we were just having a bit of a reminisce. I think I was about 38 weeks pregnant, you'd broken your wrist, and the world hadn't fallen apart yet. (laughs) Yeah, you're right, actually. Wow, it's weird to even think back to that now, isn't it? How we used to live. It's amazing how things have changed in 2020. It really is. What's 2020 taught you? What's 2020 taught me? You know, at various times, I think it's taught me different lessons. It certainly taught me to be more grateful and more appreciative of the little things in life. I think I was a pretty grateful type of person before, but I think that's been heightened during the pandemic and with all the restrictions. It's taught me how much beauty and wonder there is in my neighborhood where I live that I don't need to always escape off and go abroad to get peace and calm. I can actually have it in my back garden and in the lanes around my house. So I've really got a new appreciation of what is here, what is surrounding me right here. And I don't need to escape that to try and find, you know, nature. Often I think before I thought, no, I need to get out, I need to get to the beach somewhere. I need to go away to the sun with my family. And I've really learned how much of that was just escapism and that it's all kind of here if I want it. But I think the real thing that I focus on now, Zoe, and what I think it's taught me more than anything is that I can't control the external world. I can't control what the government do or say. I can't control the restrictions that may or may not be put on me and my family. But what I can control are the small things that I do every day. Nobody can actually tell me whether I can look into my wife's eyes and spend five minutes of real connection with her without my phone around. No one can stop me dancing with my 10-year-old son and my seven-year-old daughter to the red hot chili peppers in my kitchen before we have dinner. You know, No one can stop me, even if the gyms are shut, moving my body for five minutes a day or doing meditation for five minutes a day. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that I already knew this, but again, it's been heightened even more that I can control so much of my life. And if I focus on those things, my health, my happiness, my well-being is largely, if not entirely, under my control. It's such a powerful realisation. And what I'm really hearing is, is empowerment. You know, so often we can think that something needs to change outside of us in order to change how we feel inside. And what I'm hearing from you is that it's the opposite. You get to change the inside, how you feel, and then the outside. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside because you're so much more in control of your inner world, your inner experience. You're absolutely right. And it's if your happiness and your well-being can only be ticked off if everything around you is okay, if people in your community behave a certain way or people are this way to you on social media, or if your boss behaves in a certain way to you, then actually you're a prisoner. You're a prisoner to other people and how they behave. You've lost control over your health and your well-being. Now, I want to be really clear. I do understand that many people have found the pandemic and the associated restrictions, incredibly challenging, financial stress, relationship stress, not knowing if your job is going to be there in two months. I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm really not. But I tell you, I've not released this yet, but I spoke to Edith Eager about two weeks ago. I don't know if you know Edith or not. She is a 94-year-old lady. She has written two wonderful books some of the best books I've written. Basically, she went to Auschwitz when she was 16. I think she was getting ready to go on a date with her boyfriend that night at 16. She was happy. She'd never heard of Auschwitz. I don't know if her parents knew or whether they kept it sheltered from her, but suddenly they all get taken in a train. Her parents get murdered within, I think, an hour of getting there. 
and she becomes a prisoner until she's found a year later. You know, when the American troops came and freed them, this is the story. I don't know the accuracy of that in terms of how we talk about history in terms of what exactly happened, but she was at the bottom off a pile of bodies and she was barely alive. And now she's a 94-year-old lady. She's a psychotherapist and she speaks with warmth, with energy, with compassion, with kindness. And she's been through everything. She was on the death march in Auschwitz. She was two people away from dying. She saw everything. And do you know what she says? She says the greatest prison is not Auschwitz. The greatest prison is the prison that we create in our own minds. That conversation changed me. I'm a different person by having had that conversation with her. And I think that really echoes what I was saying at the start, Zoe, in that we create the narrative and the story in our heads. She had to dance for the angel of death, Yosef, I forget his surname. And do you know what she did? She's in Auschwitz. Her parents have just been murdered. She imagines in her mind that she's in the Budapest Opera House and that she's performing. And in her mind, although she was dancing for this sort of Nazi leader, in her mind, she was performing at the Opera House. And the last thing her mum said to her was, no one can take away from you what you put inside your mind. Again, I knew a lot of this, but hearing it from someone who has been to the depths, from someone who has seen people die in front of her, who's seen her parents get murdered, when she comes and tells you, the greatest prison in your life is the one you create in your own mind. Well, we need to stop and listen. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. So what prisons or stories in your own mind are you seeking to break free from about yourself or the world? The ones I've really been working on, because I feel in the pandemic that it's been personal growth on steroids. I honestly feel the amount of growth I have had in 2020 probably is the same amount as the stuff I had in the 10 years prior to that. Because I spoke to Gabor Mate early on in the pandemic. And what I said to Gabor is that I wonder how many of these emotions and anxiety and stresses that we're feeling now that society is changing and many of us are feeling scared, how much of that is new or is it just that we're stress testing our system? And what I mean by that is, and this is exactly what I said to him is, you know, many of us know that feeling where, you know, we're going about our day-to-day -day lives, we don't have any pain. But when we go running after 5K or 10K, our hamstring starts to play up. So in our normal lives, it's not as if the running has shown that up. The hamstring imbalance is already there. We have got some movement imbalance, but actually our lives are not stressing us enough where that hamstring imbalance shows itself. It only comes up when we're running. And I kind of feel in the pandemic, that's what happened for many of us. These underlying emotions were there, but we had not had enough stress put on our lives to expose them. So actually for many of us, it's been this wonderful opportunity to go, oh, right, I didn't know that was there. I had no idea that I had those insecurities. And therefore, now I've got a chance to work on them. And so what have I been working on? A lot to my childhood and how I was loved as a child. That's come up a lot for me. I've done a bit of therapy on that during the pandemic and how that impacts how I feel. You know, I've been someone who very much for a lot of my life has felt good about myself when other people say I'm doing well. Like, so really needing that external validation. And where that becomes problematic is if you are only happy when you get external validation, that's a very fragile place to be. Because like I said at the start, you're a prisoner. You can only be happy and feel good about yourself when someone else says you're good. Like if I come back and I was second in the class, the question for me was always, why didn't you come top? And that's very much an immigrant mentality. It's very much of, look, I love my parents and this is nothing anti my parents. I think they did a great job. They were doing the best that they could. But I now recognize certain things that happened, how much they imprinted me. And I know when I came back top of the class or with straight A's, the smiles and the love... I sort of absorb this thing that, oh, when I do really well and I get these great marks, that's when I'm loved. 
I remember, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that all of my books have gone to number one in all books on Amazon. And I remember the first time that happened when the Four Pillar Plan went to number one, like I felt amazing. I was like, oh, I can't believe this. Just incredible, right? Because I thought that means love, right? But then it happens on the second book and it happens on the third book and you don't quite have the same feeling. And it's not that you take it for granted, but I think my growth has been very much there. Well, I don't need that. Wrong. And is that why you write the books? No, <laughs> that's not why I wrote the books. I wrote the books to help people, whether it goes in at number 500 or number one. Honestly, it really doesn't matter to me anymore. You know, and this is stuff that I've been working on this year. So I've worked a lot on my childhoods. The phrase that has changed my life, and it's something that Peter Crone said to me on one of my podcasts, is he said something like this, which is, if you were that other person, you'd be acting in exactly the same way as them. And I think about that all the time. The way I interpret that is if you were that other person with their upbringing, with their parents, with their life experiences, you would have the same view as them. And I think this has really helped me deal with what it's like to have a public profile and that there is the opportunity now via social media to be frankly rude and criticize someone and be mean to someone's face because you can. And five years ago, that used to bother me. I'm like, well, I don't understand this. All I'm trying to do is help people. Like I'm just putting out kind, compassionate information to help people. Why are they attacking me? And now I don't feel anything. Now I can take myself out of the situation and go, well, they don't know me. They're attacking an idea of me in their heads. They're probably unhappy in their own life. They've been triggered by something. And if I was them, I'd be doing the same thing. And what it does is it changes everything. You become more compassionate. It takes the sting out of the situation. And so I feel very much that I've got a lot calmer. You know that phrase? In fact, I can see it. In, in, I'm in my studio at the moment. My daughter has written her interpretation up on the wall of my favorite quote, which is a Viktor Frankl quote. Her interpretation of daddy teaching it to her is between stimulus and response is a space and in that space, it's choice. That's an abbreviation of the entire quote, but I talk to my kids about that a lot, and that's her interpretation of what I've said to her, which I love. I wish I was taught that at seven years old and not like in my early 40s trying to figure this stuff out. But that's the biggest thing I think I've learned this year is I can really put space between the stressor and the response. And when I can't, I don't blame someone else, Zoe, I use that as a mirror back to me to go, hey, what's going on in your life? Why has that triggered you? Why has that phrase that someone else has said, why is that bothering you? Are you underslept? Have you not spent enough time with your wife and kids? Have you been working too hard? Or have you got some unresolved emotion? And so I seek out friction in my life. Now, I love where is the friction because that friction teaches me what I need to learn about myself. There's so much in there, Rongan, and I can notice the difference in you. And, you know, I'm an avid listener of your podcast, and I would say I've noticed the difference in your energy as well through this pandemic. To me, you were always grounded and compassionate, but I've noticed a shift. That means so much to me. And it doesn't mean a lot to me from an external validation perspective. It means a lot to me because now maybe there is a slight bit of external validation there, actually, if I'm honest and really trying to reflect. But I know that I'm different. Like I feel it. I don't need on so many levels someone to say wrong and you're different. But I've got to be honest, when you say that, it feels good. It's like, oh, great. So people can notice that. You know, Zoe is someone I really respect. You know, Zoe can notice that. Hey, that's awesome. And so maybe there's a bit of work for me still to do there, but I very much appreciate you saying that. And I think what it is, Zoe, for me, circling back to your question, which is, what's been the big change or what have you learned or what have you been grappling with? Honestly, I feel it is, I'm more me now than I've ever been. I'm learning to be me. And in so many ways, it's one of the most ridiculous things to say because why should it be hard to be me? But actually, we get so conditioned by the world around us, by our friends at school, by fitting in, by our upbringing, by what we think we should be doing in society. Many of us have got a gap between who we truly are 
and who we are being to the rest of the world. And that gap is friction and that causes problems, that causes unhappiness, it causes relationship stress, it causes mental health problems, it causes us to binge on sweet foods in the evening because we're not living a life that's true to us. And it feels freeing that I'm more me than I've ever been. You know, my challenge on my podcast is, can I speak in the same tone? Can I be the same person off mic as when the mic is in front of me? That's the challenge I set myself. Whether I'm there yet or not, I don't know, but I'm certainly closer than I've ever been before. I'm the same. That's my mission in this lifetime is to unlearn everything I believe that as babies, you know, I've just had a baby, so I get to witness this, which is such a joy. You know, babies come in, not people pleasing, not wearing masks. They cry to get their needs met. They're not wondering what people think of them. I think we're born into the world in that place of being truly ourselves. And then through, as you say, society, very well-meaning, but sometimes harmful parenting practices, you know, we learn to put on these masks and build up defences to get love, which is exactly what you were talking about around the desire for validation. So for me, that is my mission. That is my personal growth path, is just unlearning all this stuff to get closer and closer to factory settings almost, which were that I was able to just fully be me when I was a baby. I believe that. And when I watch my 10-month-old, that is absolutely true. You know, she is not worrying what other people think of her. She is just being her. Yeah, I love that. Congratulations. That's fantastic. And you're right, the kids have got it. The kids are naturally mindful. Kids naturally don't care what other people think, you know, until a certain age, of course, when it all starts to change. It's interesting. I mean, what has your drive been to go on that personal growth journey? Because the reason I ask you that, and I've got to remember that I'm not interviewing you at the moment and you're interviewing me, but I'm going to ask it because I feel for me, one of the big drives has been, I've got two young kids. I don't want to imprint my unresolved baggage on them. And so I feel that as I go deeper and I understand myself better, I'm a better parent. I'm calmer. I have less expectation of my children. I really want them to be who they want to be. I feel I'm parenting in some ways very differently from my own parents in other ways, very similar. Again, just to be super clear, that is not a criticism. I genuinely love both of my parents. I feel that they've done the very best they could for me. And I think they've done a really good job. But time moves on. We evolve. You know, the things that were considered normal 30, 40 years ago, society has changed. I've changed. I'm a different person. I think we are evolving as humans. I think we are going inwards more. We are in many ways waking up more. And I feel that I want to parent some things in the same way, but other things completely differently. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. And that's really what Motherkind is about, is that awareness. Because what I see wrong in is so many people who haven't done the work that you've done to unpack that, or even just to write it down. It's so funny to me how long people will spend researching buggies and schools and and will spend no time at all thinking about what are my values as a parent? What are our values as a family? You know, what parts of my own childhood do I want to repeat? What parts don't I? Because we know, and you'll know this from epigenetics and all the amazing guests you've had on your podcast, what we don't heal, we do repeat. There's no way out of that, unfortunately. And you asked me what my missions were. Well, I like you, you know, my big mission is to break the generational cycles because unlike you I actually come from a family where there was a lot of pain and trauma down both sides there's a lot of addiction there's suicide there's severe mental health and so my reason really is to break that cycle for myself first and then for my girls so I connect to that passion and that purpose every single day and I'm just very lucky that I have a platform that I get to talk about this stuff and I get to talk to people like you to keep me connected to that passion and that mission because there's nothing more important for me you know and like you I've done a lot of work to connect with so much compassion for my whole family generations back I've done a lot of work mapping pain through the generations with the genograms and I have so much compassion these people were incredible they just didn't have the tools or the opportunity that I've had for healing you know I had a big breakdown when I was 23 and that was my gateway to healing I was so lucky 
So yeah, I mean, it's my dream to come on your podcast. So maybe one day I'll get to unpack this more with you. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. I mean, I'd love to go down into that story. It sounds like there'll be a lot that you can share that many people would benefit from because it's sharing stories. It's being authentic. It's being yourself. It's being vulnerable. I honestly feel the way to change the world is through long-form conversation, right? That is my belief because I believe that through conversation, through nuanced conversation where you can have a bit of perspective or a bit of context where you can hear somebody's story and their journey, that is what's missing in the world at the moment. You know, we live in, in a, a social media heavy world. I'm not against social media, right? I use social media. I understand that it is a tool that can be used for good or it can be used to harm. And I try my best to use it for good. Of course, I can't guarantee that every way I use it is being received like that, but I certainly hope it is. That's certainly the intention. But social media wants you to give that snappy meme, that 30-second soundbite that Instagram likes. And you can like that meme and you can like and give it a little comment and then move on with your life. It doesn't mean they don't have value. But what I love about podcasting is that you can go deep. You can actually understand someone beyond the kind of edited soundbites. It's what's really going on. Because when we hear other people's stories, when we listen, we connect. That's how humans have always learned. It's through connection. It's through storytelling. You know, I'm a doctor. Public health is a massive thing. And we say, why are we still failing with public health? Well, the reason I think we're failing is because we're trying to use logic to change people's behavior. We're trying to give them facts on if you do this now, in 30 years, you're going to be healthier. You know what? For most people, in through one ear, out the other. We never learn like that. We learn through connection, through emotion, through stories. And that's why I'm passionate about having conversations like this with you, because we can help people change their lives. They can get a little window into someone else's life and go, oh, I struggled like that as well. Wow, wasn't it incredible to hear Zoe's story? That's a bit like my story. Oh, wow, Zoe did that you know, I might try that. Maybe that's going to help me. It's going to help me shift my perspective. So, you know, I'm just like you, Zoe, I think very, very passionate that these conversations have the impact to truly transform and change lives. I absolutely agree with you. What I love about your books, and I read your new one last night, and I want to talk about it because it's so incredible, is that you take really quite big challenges that people have in their lives, you know, stress, daily habits, weight, and you have this incredible skill and talent to make these challenges accessible, simple, but fundamentally give people a roadmap to be able to transform their lives. I was reading it last night, your new book, Feel Great, Lose Weight. And I said to my husband, you know, Rongan has a real talent here. It's so powerful that you are in this space, talking about these big challenges that we have, like stress and weight. And I want to talk about the new book because it's so important, especially for mothers, because there are so, so, so many people who'll be listening now struggling with their esteem around what they look like, trying different diets, it not working, their esteem again, taking a battering. We've been talking about modeling, you know, modeling perhaps maybe not what we might not want to model to our children around healthy eating and weight. So, you know, I guess you could have chosen any number of areas for your next book. What was it about weight that made you think it was the right time now to talk about this? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. 
I mean, Zoe, first of all, thank you. I just started to do interviews and press around the new book. And this is the second half day in which I'm doing. And the feedback from everyone I've spoken to so far has been incredible. And I feel truly grateful for that. Thank you for the kind things you said about the new book. I honestly believe it's my best one yet. It's a funny one. Although it says lose weight on the title, and we can maybe go into that if you want, the truth is this is a book that will help any one of us. It helped me as I wrote the book. I don't need to lose weight. Most people would look at me and go, what, you don't need to lose weight. No, but you know what? I've learned a lot about myself and my behaviors in this book. And really, I feel this book is a book about getting to know yourself better and understanding why you make certain choices and then helping you make different choices. I think it will improve people's confidence, their self-esteem, their mental health. It will improve their stress, their sleep. And yeah, it will also help people who want to lose excess weight. It will help them. It's a very compassionate book. You know, I start off saying it's not your fault. You're not broken. You don't have a lack of willpower. You're living in a society where actually the easy choice is the unhealthy choice. You know, if you took your great grandparents or you took your hunter gatherer ancestors and popped them into 2020, you know what? 65% of them would probably be overweight or obese as well because we didn't suddenly become lazy and gluttonous in the 1980s when obesity started to rise. No, the world around us changed. We're simply responding to that environment. So why did I write this book? Because actually, Zoe, I don't know if you've seen any of this, but when I announced it, yes, loads of people were really excited and we've had an incredible amount of pre-sales so far. But I got a bit of criticism. I got a bit of criticism saying, Dr. Chatty, I love all your work, but I'm really surprised you'd write a book like this. You know, I'm shocked, Dr. Chatty. I've been following your work for years. Can't believe you wrote a book like this. And what's interesting for me is that that was when I posted about this in July. They've not even read the book, but they're judging the book by its cover. Now, the old me would have been very upset by that. But the new me is like, okay, you're judging something that you've not read. I think this is the best book I've written. I think it's compassionate. I think it has really distilled down the essence of health in a way that I'm always trying to do. And also having a profile, having three Sunday Times bestsellers behind me, it changes things. I'll tell you what it changes. I know now that with my platform, I can really impact a lot of people in terms of their health and the quality of their lives. Now, my mission, I've stated this publicly, is over the course of my career, I want to help 100 million people transform their lives and their health. Now, I can't do that if I only speak to the same audience year after year. There is a section of the public out there who will only pick up a book on health if it promises them weight loss. That is the truth. And it's a lot of these people who will pick up the latest celebrity diet book every January. In many ways, of course, it can work for some people. And I'm not at all criticizing people for writing those books. But what I see is people trying their very best. They pick up the latest book, the drop a dress size book in two weeks, and they drop their dress sizes in January. And by March, not only are they back to where they were, they've gone up a little bit. They feel like failures. They feel guilty. They feel shame. They feel like they can't stick to anything. And they go into this negative spiral that changes the following January when they're looking for their new miracle cure. And I thought, wrong and look, Nearly 70% of the UK population are overweight or obese. What I have in common with the body positivity movement is that I believe we should not fat shame. We should accept people for who they are. We should love people for who they are. We should not discriminate against them. I completely agree. And that is the approach that I take in the book for sure. But where I slightly differ with some proponents, and not all, a lot of people are saying we should not be helping people lose excess weight. We should absolutely just be accepting for who they are. And I'm like, well, I accept people for who they are. I don't judge people for carrying excess weight. But I also feel as a doctor that I've seen the evidence. I've seen that actually when you can help people lose weight in a sustainable way that works for them in the context of their lifestyle, you know what? They feel better. They have more energy. They sleep better. Their relationships are better. Their mental health improves. I'm very passionate that you can do both. You can be compassionate 
and you can help people. So why did I write this book? Because I'm sick of seeing people who every January try a new diet and end up feeling worse off than they used to be. They're heavier and they feel worse about themselves. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tackle this head on. I'm going to really try and penetrate that market. Yes, I think my existing followers and readers are going to love this book. I think they're going to find similar themes that are expanded upon new tools, new techniques that they haven't heard from me before. So I think my existing audience are going to love this one. But I'm really hoping to reach a new audience as well, who I feel really need this holistic approach to health, and I don't feel they're getting it. You're so right. And I think it's brave to do that. And it's powerful because as you say, if we get stuck in our echo chambers, always talking to the people who love our content and agree with it and are going to buy our books, the capacity that we have and you have to be a real change maker is limited. But I think the title, having read the book, every single word, the book is about so much more than that because I'm not in a position where I want to lose weight right now. And yet I found myself underscoring particular parts, you know, really thinking about my relationship to food. And I think that's really what this book is about, is about our relationship to food, because it is so complex. And I love how you break it down into what, why, when, how and where. And maybe we touch on a few of those. But I think that's what I took, is that really what we put in our mouths is about so much more than what's available to us or just what we're grabbing. You know, it's really about the underlying emotions that are connected with that. It's a funny one, right? I've had to learn the whole publishing game, right? I'm not misleading anyone. If you want to lose weight, this book's going to help you. But actually, in some ways, where it is misleading is that it's so much more than that. I could have called this something else. I could have called it an improve your self-esteem book, improve your mental health. I could have called it understand yourself better, a live longer book, right? Because it's the same tools, but I've done it this way because I want to reach a certain audience who I think are being underserved. But I really hope that other people also pick the book up because as you say, you're not wanting to actually lose weight, but there's plenty in there that you're learning from. Look, the way I put it, this year, well, 2020, when so many people put on weight, and the media, I don't know, they have all kinds of names like the Corona Stone and all kinds of things I've heard being bandied around. And people are feeling bad. They're like, oh man, you know what? I'm putting on weight and then I'm seeing in the news if I'm overweight or obese, that I'm at increased risk of complications and getting to hospital. They're beating themselves up. They're feeling bad. But let's look at it rationally. 2020 was one of the most stressful years many of us have lived through, certainly for me. The whole fabric of society changed in 2020. We know from the research, 80% of us change our eating behavior in response to food. 45% of us eat more, 35% of us eat less. So of course, stressful, anxiety-inducing year, 45% of the population eats more in response to stress, of course, weight is going to go up. You know, The Guardian published an article a couple of weeks ago saying chocolate sales have gone up by 50% in the UK in 2020. We are comfort eating. And as I posted on Instagram just a couple of hours ago, right, and this is a quote from the book, we used to eat to fill a hole in our stomachs. Now we eat to fill a hole in our hearts. I just want people to think and sit with that just for a moment. When we're tired, we eat. When we're stressed, we eat. When we're lonely, we eat. When we're bored, we eat. When we've had a row with our partner or kids' bedtime has gone on too long, we sit down on the sofa and we eat. That's fine. I don't want you to feel bad about it, but I want you to understand it. Is it really a new diet book that you need in January? Or is it a better understanding of why you engage in the behaviours that you do? Does anyone who's trying to lose weight really need another book to tell them that crisps, biscuits and sweets on the sofa in the evening in front of Netflix are not going to be helping? No, most people already know that. They need to understand not just what you eat, but why we eat, which is why the book is split up into why we eat, what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, and where we eat, all are critical components to consider. And my favourite exercise in the book, uh, Zoe, and this has really helped me 
with food and with social media. It's called the freedom exercise. I refer to it about 10 times in the book. I use it with my patients. I don't call it the freedom exercise with my patients. The two days before this went to print, I was still changing the name of the exercise because I thought to get an idea out there, it needs to have a bit of snap. It needs to be catchy. People need to remember it. So when they're away from their house, they can still remember it. So it's got three F's in it. Feel, feed, and find. So I want people to think about that. Feel, feed, find. And it goes like this. It's really simple. Next time you feel a craving for something, let's say food, let's say it's 8.30 in the evening and you feel a craving for a chocolate bar. I said, take a pause and really tap into the first F, feel. What is it you're really feeling? Is it hunger or is it boredom or loneliness or stress? You know, take a few moments, just identify the feeling if you can. And then if you want to eat the chocolate bar, fine, go for it. The next F is feed. How does food feed that feeling? So it's like, oh, so bedtime with the kids was stressful. I've been on Zoom calls all day. I've not had time to unwind. Oh, I'm using chocolate to help me manage that stress. Okay, great. You're starting to become more aware now of your own behaviors. And the third F is find. Now that you understand the feeling, now that you know how your food choice feeds that feeling, can you find an alternative behavior to feed that feeling? So when you're stressed, instead of going to chocolate, can you put on one of your favorite tunes in the kitchen and have a little boogie? Can you do a minute of star jumps? Maybe you go and run a bath and chill out in the bath to a candle. Maybe you read a book. Maybe you go to a different room. Maybe you're used to snacking on the sofa. So maybe you go and sit in your bedroom and read a book so you're not being triggered in the same way. So what I'm really giving people is awareness. Awareness, because without awareness, it's very hard to change. And too many people are not being given that awareness. They're trying to follow the new 21-day plan. Okay, great. Pick up any book, follow their 21-day plan. You'll feel better. We all do. If you stick to it, you're likely to feel better and you'll probably lose a bit of weight. But most people don't want that. They think they want that. They say they want that, Zoe. But I can tell you from seeing tens of thousands of patients over 20 years, people want real transformation and change. Most people don't want to drop a dress size in January. They might say they do. They might get appealed by what's on the book to buy that. But actually what they really want is better self-esteem. They want to look in the mirror and feel good about who they are. Yes, they might want to lose weight as well. But the way I teach people in the new book, Feel Great, Lose Weight, I help people feel great now. And the weight loss comes along as an inevitable consequence. And this is why this book is about so much more than weight loss. Because if you just want to feel better buy this book, it's going to help you. And if you don't have excess weight to lose, it's, you're not going to suddenly lose more weight. No, this book will help you lose weight if you've got some weight that you want to lose. And if you don't, it will just help you improve your health, improve your well-being, and improve the quality of your life. What was coming up for me as you were talking is almost that classic iceberg model, you know, that's used in CBT therapy, which is really just at the tip of the iceberg is where many of those diet books that you're talking about sit just on the, here's your plan, this is what you eat. What this book does and your work does is it goes right under the surface. And I love the section where you talk about the subconscious and how actually so much of our eating habits is driven by what's going on under the surface. Can you talk to that? Because I've never seen that conversation in any kind of outside the psychology books that I've got. And I thought, yes, I was high-fiving when I read that because it is so important. And it is just, as you say, utterly missed in most diet books, health books, cooking books, all of it, miss it. And yet I think it's the primary driver. It's interesting you say that. This is my favorite bit of the book. Actually, my wife helped me edit this section. We spent weeks on just those few pages because you can go deep on that stuff. You can write a whole book on it. So it's kind of like, how can I bring this into this whole framework around everything else? How can I keep it simple, give people the essence of it? And it's interesting, going back to what we said before, Zoe, some of the people who've criticized the cover when they saw it, when I posted about it in July, said, oh, you know, I bet you haven't covered the ACEs study. You know, do you know about childhood experiences and how that impacts obesity? I said, hey, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I do actually. There's a whole section on it. It's like from the cover, they're judging it to be a book that it really isn't. 
And the reason I think I keep coming back to this is because it's been something that's on my mind. I don't need to write a book on weight loss in the sense that it's safer for me to not tackle this issue. It is safer for me to write a different book where I just promote health and well-being in a slightly different way. But what am I doing this for? Am I doing it for ego? Am I doing it for validation or am I doing it for impact? So if you're doing it for impact, Rongan, well, now that you've got a big platform, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to really reach those people and really help them and serve them? And that's the other bit of work I'd be doing during the pandemic is really understanding who I am and what I'm going to do with the profile I built for myself. Are you going to play it safe or are you going to take risks and know that some people who follow you and love your work may judge you the wrong way for doing something like this? Or are you going to be bold and really try and make change in the world? And I decided I'm going to be bold. I'm going to go for it. And if people judge me for it and they don't read the book because they don't like the cover, okay, fine. I can't influence them, but I know my intention. So in terms of that section of the book, you know, there is this ACES study, A-C-E-S. I'm sure you've spoken about it before. I think it was done by Dr. Vincent Filetti, and he showed that people who've had a certain amount of childhood experiences, so traumatic experiences like experiencing a bereavement or trauma or physical abuse or emotional abuse, there is a significant correlation between that and being overweight and obese significant correlation. And this gets missed out of the conversation all the time. It's simply about, oh, how much are you eating and how much are you moving? And I tell you, right, that is far too simplistic. This is a complex problem, which is why nearly 70% of the population are struggling with it. It is complex. There's all these cases. One of them I remember that I talk about in the book is this, oh man, it's emotional even thinking about it. It's this teenager who'd had an abusive relationship. She was in an abusive relationship, I think about 16 or 17. And she was never overweight. She'd never been overweight before. A few years later, she's really, really overweight, but she was never like that as a kid or as a teenager. And when we started to really spend time, when I'd connected with her, when we started to unpack this, well, what was really going on is that her subconscious had decided the way she doesn't get in another abusive relationship is to put on weight. If I put on weight, boys and men are not going to find me attractive and not going to want to date me. And therefore I'm not going to be in a position where I get abused by a partner again. That was what was going on. She can try diets all she wants. She can go and beast herself on the treadmill all that she wants. But the way we got her to change things, the way we gave her freedom, whether it's with her mental health or her weight, was to help tackle this area. So I started off that conversation. I helped her see what was going on there. Then we got a psychotherapist involved. She really started to unpack that. And a few years on, she's thriving absolutely thriving because it was never just about the weight. It was about all these complex emotional issues. So I could talk to you for two hours on this topic just right here, but I summarize that in the book for people and I give them simple tools that they can start doing on themselves to start giving them heightened awareness. And if someone's listening to this and they're feeling triggered and feeling upset, I think it's really important. I want to say as a doctor that please don't just sit with this yourself. Please talk to a friend or a family member who you feel you can trust. Maybe talk to your doctor, see if they can help you. Psychotherapists, counselling can be really, really helpful to really help you tackle that. But I will say there are some very simple tools that I've outlined in the book that I think really will help people on that journey to start getting to know themselves better. There's one simple exercise in the book called, I think I call it out of the dark and into the light. So basically trying to say, look, we need to bring these ideas and emotions out from being buried inside you and bring them out, put some light on them so you can start tackling them. It's a really simple exercise where you have to say three kind things to yourself each day. It is amazing how many people, Zoe, find that the most difficult thing in the world to do. If someone's listening to this now, Zoe, and they think three kind things to myself, oh man, I couldn't do that. It makes them feel uncomfortable just the thought of that. Well, that is a very good sign that you need to work on that even more than maybe someone who doesn't feel that uncomfortable. Because if you can't say three nice things about yourself, if you can't love yourself, you're going to find it very hard to really, truly love someone else. And you're going to find it very, very hard to be truly loved 
by somebody else. So it's a simple exercise that you can get better at, but it's these simple things that we can do on a daily basis that don't take long, they don't cost any money to do, that can have a profound impact on our overall well-being. But also, if you're someone who is wanting to lose weight, it can also help you lose weight. And I love that you talk about inner voice in the book as well. And I think what people are getting a flavour of hearing you talk is the depth of the book. And I've said it before, but I will say again, you have this talent. It is an absolute talent where you're able to distill these big complex ideas into a beautifully designed, by the way, double page spread, and then give these exercises. You know, Ronga and I've been doing this work for 13 years, you know, healing and coaching and working with people. And, you know, I always find something new and innovative in the way that you position these tools. You make them so accessible. And I think, you know, I'll share about it. The book's out at the end of December. It's out on the 31st of December, isn't it? And so I'll I'll be sharing about it a lot then, but I really would encourage people, even if you like me, you know, that isn't your mission to shed the pounds. I still think this book has so much power and richness in it. As I said before, I think it's really about our relationship with food. The last thing that I just want to ask you about before we finish is at the end of the book, I saw a little glimpse of Rongan the activist when you were talking about schools. And again, I was high-fiving and I said to my husband, this is so exciting if Rongan could use his platform, just like, you know, Jamie Oliver and Joe Wicks have to talk about food in schools because my little girls just started school and it's fascinating how that in an education establishment, food doesn't seem to be part of the incredibly important mix of how we learn and how our brains are. Can you talk to that? And then I know we've got to close. Again, thanks Zoe. It means the world to me that you're so passionate about this and that you can see past the title and actually get this book for what it really is. Again, not that it's not about losing weight, it is, but it's so much more than that. And of course, by trying to attract that audience, you run the risk of other people who would benefit from the book not picking it up. But you know what? That's the way it goes. You you know, it's impossible with one title to appeal to absolutely everyone. So you have to just decide who you're really focusing on, who you're trying to change, who you're trying to influence. With response to that bit at the end about the activism, yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because that is something I really was passionate about. You know, my kids are a bit older than yours. I have a 10-year-old son, a seven-year-old daughter, and I see what goes down since they started school. And I'm very clear in my heads that schools should be the model for people, for children, educationally, behaviorally, but also nutritionally. I really feel we're living in a society where adult-wise, 65 to 70% of the UK population are overweight or obese. Kids-wise, one in five UK children start primary school overweight or obese. By the time they go to secondary school, that's one-third. One-third of kids are overweight or obese by the time they start secondary school. I've been looking around secondary schools recently with my son, who's going to be joining one of them next year. So many of them have got chocolate machines fizzy drink machines in. These things are served. When kids have birthday parties, they're brought in. And I'm thinking, is it just me? Or is there something kind of messed up here? Now, I will say it is not my job to tell any other parent what they should do with their kids. That is a family's right to determine that. And I make that super clear in the book. But I think in schools, we should be promoting health and well-being. I don't think in the society we're living in anymore, there is any case to have crisps, chocolates, and fizzy drinks being available to buy at school or being served at school. A lot of people may disagree with me, but I'm very firm in my belief on this. Schools will benefit because we know that the food a child eats can affect their performance, can affect their concentration, can affect their mental health, right? You know, most teachers go into teaching because they have a love of helping their children learn and, and sort of empowering and giving this knowledge to children. Well, you know what? If you're a teacher, I tell you what, if the child in your class has had a decent meal and they've not had a sweet treat and a sugary drink at lunchtime, you know what? They're going to concentrate more. They're going to be more engaged. They're going to be more creative. I feel strongly that this is not about personal responsibility. When you're outside the school, 
do what you want, right? A family has got every right to decide. But the problem is, and I know many parents feel the same way as me, and I face this with my own children, if that is the norm in schools, what happens is if you're one of those families who's trying to promote health and well-being with your children, you are then left in a very challenging situation because then your kids risk becoming social outcasts at school because everyone else is having their Coke and their chocolate bar. And if your kids aren't, then they're not part of the gang. So I feel very strongly that we can't change this across society unless we make schools healthy places, workplaces. I talk about workplaces and all the benefits for the employers as well as the employees if a workplace is healthy. Now, I appreciate over the pandemic, you know, a lot of people have worked from home. Maybe there's not as much going on in workplaces at the moment, but hopefully that will change again. So that was a really important part of the book for me. And I've got letters on my website. If they want to write to their head teacher or they want to write to their employer, there are letters that they can download from my website that they can just tweak a bit if they want and send them. So I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for people to actually get out there and start making change. And here's the funny thing. I've spoken to some head teachers about it. And they go, wrong, you know, we'd love to, but you know what? You know, we get so much pushback from parents. It reminds me, Zoe, of what you said early on in this conversation. You know, your mission is to try and stop the cycle getting repeated. Now, let's just use that when we talk about our relationship as adults with food and then how we imprint that onto our kids. Often we have a certain relationship with food that when we feel stressed, we love a chocolate bar. So we don't want to deprive our child from that. So why no, why should school not allow that to be served there? It gets very, very complex. So I, I approach this with compassion. I say I'm not asking anyone else to change what they do with their own children, but I do feel strongly that we have an epidemic of ill health in this country. Feeding our kids junk food at school it may have been okay in the 1970s when the population wasn't as sick as it is now, but I don't think it has any place in 2021. And I hope that what I put in the book, what I put on the website in terms of these letters, in some way starts to contribute to a change. It's so powerful. And I'm actually loving the energy that you're bringing to this. It feels quite new, actually, to hear you talking in this way around activism and the passion that comes through. I'm so excited to see what you're going to do with this area in particular. It could be transformational for sure. So I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give all the mothers in the world just one gift, what would that one gift be and why? I would say to all the mothers listening, that what you have done, growing a child inside you for nine months, giving birth to that child, nourishing that child, feeding that child, putting your child's needs above your own is one of the most incredible things. And as a man, as someone who will never have the opportunity to experience that, I honor you. It's one of the most incredible things in humanity. It's one of the most incredible things on the planet. And I just want you to know, however tough your life is right now, however stressed you may feel, however much your baby or your child may be crying and you find you don't have enough time to yourself, you are doing the most incredible job in the world. And I want to just thank you for what you do. I want to thank all the mothers and my gift to you is say, you are worth it. If all you do is take five minutes a day to do something for yourself, please do it. Because what mothers give to other people, the way they nurture their children, often their entire families is incredible. So give yourself the gift of five minutes today where you do something that is unashamedly for yourself. Beautiful. So important. Thank you. That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I think if I could take one thing away from this episode that I've been reflecting on around my relationship with food and weight, it's that so often it is what's going on under the surface. It's what's going on emotionally for me around food and that's why diets don't work you know i'm sure we all did it in our 20s those crash diets and quick fixes they don't work because what's really fundamental around our relationship with the food and our weight 
is the emotion. What's linking in with the emotion on our relationship with food. So something to ponder on. I hope you really did enjoy the episode. Just one last thing from me. It's the first week of January. If you feel like you want some new tools to handle whatever 2021 might throw at you, please do check out the Family Reset Plan. It's still only £25. It's still free for NHS workers. And in there, with a doctor of psychology and a doctor of child psychology and me as your coach, we share tons of tools, accessible, simple, very quick to do, that are going to help you feel more calm and more in control of whatever this next year might throw at us so please do check it out familyresetplan.co.uk that's it from me i will speak to you next week